Our message this morning is we're going to continue in our Proverbs, our Proverbs series. And um, we're going to, again, be a little bit all over the map today, but our, our anchor point is certainly in Proverbs. In this, in this book of Proverbs, Solomon's been teaching us about wisdom, um, about how to live in this world. And he's got a lot to say about all, all different aspects of our lives. But we've looked at Solomon's wisdom for our hearts. when He tells us that we have to guard our hearts because out of our hearts come everything else in our life. He tells us that we have to guard and watch over our tongues. We have to keep control of them because the same tongue can comfort and wound. It can worship and blaspheme. It can speak beautiful truths and it can speak wicked lies. So we, we looked into how we have to watch our tongues. And today I want to continue this line of thinking, these, these parts of the body kind of analogies, because they're so powerful to think about how we use our bodies. So today I want to talk about the work of our hands. And Proverbs has much to say about that. That, that phrase there, the work of our hands, actually comes from Psalm 90. Um, I want to read, read just a couple verses from Psalm 90 that I, that I did not put in the handout. So I apologize, but it's in Psalm 90. It's already in your Bible, so you can look there. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say this one, and then I'm going to go to the Proverbs focal passages, even though that's kind of weird. But um, in, cha- in chapter 90, but verse, my goodness, my poor eyes, verse 16, it says, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This psalm is Moses. He's there, it's the only psalm of Moses, I believe. Everything else is other people, mostly David. But Moses wrote this psalm. If you just think about Moses himself saying, Lord, establish the work of our hands, was his prayer answered? Wow. Was it ever? So the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And, and we want to we look to Moses and say, yeah, establish the work of our hands. But I want to talk about how that works, actually, and what it means to establish the work of our hands a little bit and, and some other things. Um, so I'm going to be using as another focal passage from cha- Proverbs chapter 10, 24. Uh, I'll, I'll give these and then we'll go into a, a brief prayer and, and then the message. Um, these two Proverbs, 10.4 and 24.30, the first is a very state, straightforward statement of truth, doctrine, principle. It's, it's very straightforward. The second one is more poetic. It's a metaphor. It's a, it's a visual illustration of the point that he's making here. So the first one, hear the word of the Lord. Proverbs 10.4, idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. And Proverbs 24.30 says, I went by the field of a slacker and by the vineyard of one lacking sense. Thistles had come up everywhere and weeds covered the ground and the stone wall was ruined. I saw and took it to heart. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest. And your poverty will come like a robber and your need like a bandit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word, your word of instruction, your word of 
of justice and your word of grace, your word of mercy for us. Father, your word of gospel truth. Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, it will change our hearts, change our thoughts, make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I want to emphasize three points. Um, Because we're talking mostly about work, the work of our hands. And work is God's gift. That's point one. Work is God's gift. Point two, rest is God's gift. And then point three, our work and our rest find meaning only in Jesus. So work is God's gift. Rest is God's gift. But they both find meaning only in Jesus. How many of you have heard someone who's frustrated with a situation say, that's why they call it work. You may have heard me say that, because that's something that I say from time to time. Why do we say that? Well, when we get frustrated, right? We're trying to do something and we run into some inane roadblock that's just frustrating. And we say, well, that's why they call it work. In other words, it's not fun. It's not a joy. It's just work, right? In that moment, we're not really thinking of this as a gift, are we? At least I'm not. I won't speak for you, but you may be able to relate. But let's think back. Let's think back to Genesis, first things, to the story of creation, when God made the world and put Adam and Eve in it. Before the fall, before they sinned and brought a curse upon themselves, what did God tell them to do? Well, Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that, that crawls on the earth. And then in Genesis 2.15, the second chapter, but still before the fall, it explains the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. So we see He gave them work to do. He assigned them a task and a purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. Check. Very obedient there. Subdue and rule the earth. Yeah, they, they did that pretty well. Work the garden and watch over it. Well, they they lost access to the garden itself, but still we have the rest of creation. But they had a purpose. They had a, a, a work and a task to do. Then came Satan, temptation and the fall. And because of their sin, God told them that there was going to be a curse. I won't tell that whole story in detail, but... Because, of their, because they rebelled against God, because they disobeyed what He said, He said there, there is now necessarily going to be a curse. In Genesis 3.17, He said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. So we see that the fall brought the curse, which brought for us difficulty, frustration, and pain to our work. But the work is still there. The purpose wasn't changed. See, Adam was placed in the garden to rule over creation with wisdom and power and care. That was his purpose sitting in the place of God, really, for creation. And he was delegated this authority by God who made him in his own image. And the mission didn't change when the fall happened. The purpose stayed the same. The work was the purpose and the gift, but the conditions in which he had to do the work had now changed. Now 
Now creation itself is resisting, is pushing back, it's struggling. And now there's even a sense of futility that's happening. And God even told him, you're dust and you will return to dust. Until that happens, you're going to eat by pain and sweat and you're going to deal with thorns and thistles. So fast forward to Solomon because we're talking and we're studying about Solomon. And he's telling us in these verses that diligent work is good. It says, the one who pursues this diligent work is going to be blessed. The one who shirks the work is going to suffer from poverty and ruin. And this is a principle we've noticed. If you've been reading through the Proverbs, you've seen this over and over and over again. I just picked out a couple verses, but they're common. They're all through the Proverbs. You see this principle. But it's a principle, and, and we've, we've talked about this several times, that for the most part in Proverbs, what we have are principles that are generally true, but they're not promises that are absolutely um, binding at all times and in all circumstances. Are there cases where people diligently work and do not prosper? Yes. Are there some cases where people commit fraud and do prosper? Yes. Yes. So these are principles. In general, in life, in the long run, God does not honor fraud and He does honor work. And that's the principle that Solomon's laying out for us. So we know that this is the idea. Faithfully do your work. Care for your own. You're going to be blessed enough. But be lazy and make excuses for not working. Spend your time chasing fantasies and you'll be sorry. Poor, hungry, and in slavery to those who are diligent. That's an interesting, interesting thing. But you see, Solomon, we see this simple, clear message in Proverbs, but Solomon has a more complicated relationship with work. Because in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes, a different book by the same author, he says... This is chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. So which Solomon do we believe? The author of Proverbs or the author of Ecclesiastes? Well, they don't really disagree. It's the same Solomon, the wisest man ever. Proverbs affirms the goodness, the purpose, and the gift of the work. And it teaches us a core principle. Ecclesiastes mourns the effect of the curse. He acknowledges that, yes, our work is tainted because of this curse. But Proverbs affirms that the work is good. So the principle here is this, that God's work or work is God's gift to us. It takes many forms. Each of us may have different kinds of work that we do. God in creation, He set the example. He worked at creation. It says that He worked and then He rested. Then He, he made us in His image to do what? Well, He worked on the creation. He made it, but He made us to work in the creation, to rule over it as He would with power, wisdom, and love. Because of our sin, that assignment is harder, but it's still our purpose. It's still our gift from God. I want you to think about this as a... It's an illustration. It's sort of a little parable. It's not a true story. But imagine a couple who has a child, a little girl. And one day they take her ice skating. And, and they see that she loves it. And she's actually good at it. And so 
she starts to ask them, hey, can I have lessons? Would you, would you let me to te- uh, learn more about this? So they, they begin to pay for her lessons. And they begin to pursue this life of pursuing ice skating. And she just continues to grow and get better and develop as an athlete, as a talent. Now, when you get deep down that road, sacrifice comes, right? Their whole life begins to be shaped around this thing. It's no longer just a hobby or a cute thing that she does. The whole life of the family is oriented toward this goal of her being the best skater that she can be and dreaming maybe of Olympics someday, right? So she continues to progress and get better. And she's on the cusp of of this success and actually achieving the goals that they've been working for her whole life. And then she has a doubt, a crisis. And she says, I'm not sure I really want this anymore. I'm not sure I really want to do this. And, and so she feels like so much effort has gone into it. And maybe she has had to give up a lot. But she's only thinking about what she has done. And she, she forgets that her parents have invested so much. And she's, she's not realizing the benefit. And there's really no end to this story because it's just a setup to ask us to think about ourselves. We have been positioned to do the work of God in this world. And it's meaningful work. Will we take that? Like like her, will we take it and go and pursue the glory of the work for for God's purposes? Or will we walk away from it and abandon it after the sacrifice that He's made for us to put us in this position? If you're a believer, you have the opportunity to work for Him. And and in His ways. It's, it's such a blessing. It's such a privilege. So do you, do you see that that's a gift to be able to do that? To take that assignment? Or do you think that you've earned it all yourself and so it's yours to throw away? Do you think that maybe you've earned it all yourself so you can still t- choose to go and perform, but you can take the glory and forget that without Him, you're nothing? Without Him, you could not be where you are? We have to think clearly about our work. Point two, rest is God's gift. There are a couple of Proverbs that are not in the Bible, but I think Solomon may still have approved of these. One of them is an old English proverb. It says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle hand. Have you ever heard that? I'm sure. That's a pretty famous one. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. I looked it up. It goes back at least to the 12th century and... And the origins beyond that are really not known, so it could be older. Uh, But it's English, or we believe it's English. The other one is Turkish, and this is an interesting one. It says, the devil tempts all other men, but idle men tempt the devil. Let that sink in for a second. The devil tempts all men, but idle men tempt the devil. It's as if he's looking around, he sees idle people, and he's like, hmm, what can I do with these guys? They look like potential useful helpers for me. So Solomon tells us, consider the ant, how he tirelessly works, never stops working, and works and works to have provision for his little colony. And he warns us all over Proverbs, it's multiple times again and again, don't stay in bed, get up and and get moving. He even makes little sarcastic comments about a, a slacker laying in bed and turning on his bed as if he's on a hinge, right? Like a door, just flipping back and forth like a door on, on his bed. 
He warns us, don't be, don't be a slacker. Get up and get moving. So if we listen to Proverbs and read all these things, it seems like, are we ever to rest? Or just work, work, work all the time? But this, it's not really the complete picture. For God, we talked about creation. He created the world for six days, but He rested on the seventh. Right? He established the rhythm of the days for all of us. And it's fascinating to me, the whole entire world runs on a seven-day schedule. The whole world does. Why is that? Is there any natural reason why that would be so? No. God set it up that way because He wanted to. It's not just something that evolved. God set it up. The rhythm is not just work, work, work. The rhythm is work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. That's the rhythm that God set up. From the very beginning, Genesis 2, 3 tells us, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for he, on it He rested from all His work of creation. So this Sabbath, or the seventh rest day, was commanded by God as part of the law of Israel. It was actually a formal part of the law. It's even in the Ten Commandments. This is an important thing to God. It's part of His covenant with Israel. Israel was strictly forbidden from working on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. The penalty for breaking that command in working was death. Just think about that. That seems, in my mind anyway, just thinking about it, like a fairly innocuous thing to do. Oh, I worked a little too much. The penalty was death. Why? Moses had a man stoned for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Why? Well, God had declared it holy. He gave them a strict set of instructions that He expected to be obeyed. And He said, this is how it's going to be. Because because of the rhythm that I have established in my creation and in my rest, this is what you're going to do to honor Me. You're going to take this day off. So to, to ignore that was direct disobedience. And it was dishonoring God. A day of rest is also a day of faith. Why is that? Well, we eat by our work. We... We get shelter by our work. So to take a day off and really not work, that is an act of faith. We're trusting that God's going to feed and cover us on that day. That's the intent, that we look to God for for our sustenance on the day that we rest. Even when He was feeding the Israelites in the desert with manna, he, He gave them enough on the sixth day so that they would not have to work on the seventh. But all the other days He made it spoil so that they would work six and take the seventh off. He was coaching them. He was training them. He was helping them to understand the rhythm for 40 years in the desert. The other thing that God had in mind for Israel is He had a specific purpose for Israel. He was making Israel for a purpose. The purpose of Israel was to bring forth the Messiah and to, to be able to explain through story and through prophecy and then through reality what the meaning of the Messiah was. And so he had to build Israel up. And his laws, even though they seem strange and arbitrary, are all pointing to Jesus. And so the specific purpose was to be the nation that brought this promised deliverer. The laws were shaped to set Israel apart and to provide the context for the deliverer when he came. So if Israel was not to work on the Sabbath, what were they supposed to do? Rest and worship. Those were the two things that they were supposed to do on the Sabbath day. 
Now over time, the priests and rabbis of Israel, they turned the gift of the Sabbath into a harsh obligation with complex rules, very specific enforcement rules of how far are you allowed to walk and how heavy of a thing are you allowed to carry and uh, what are you supposed to do? Even today in Israel, they have things called Sabbath ovens and Sabbath elevators. And I haven't been there yet. I hope to someday, but I've heard the stories that you can actually ride an elevator that automatically just goes up and down all day long so that you don't have to push a button. Because technically, pushing a button is work. This is, this is man's response to God's goodness. We, we figure out a way to make it way complicated. When Jesus the Deliverer came 14 years after Moses, the Pharisees criticized His disciples for picking little pieces of grain as they were walking on the Sabbath. They walked through a field. And the Pharisees said they were breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus, who never, ever broke God's law, but didn't mind breaking the rabbis and the scribes' addendums to it. In fact, I think He kind of enjoyed that. Uh, He told them two things. One, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, this is a gift from God. Celebrate it, observe it, honor it, but don't worship it with legalism, right? That was Jesus' message back to the Pharisees. The Sabbath is a good thing. It's not a slavery. The other, the, the critical thing He told them is, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now those are strong, strong words. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And when He says this, He's saying a lot. Now the Son of Man, that phrase, is the God-man from the prophecy of Daniel. Any of His listeners would have known what He meant when He said those words. How can Jesus claim this? Well, this is interesting. Genesis tells us that God created the heavens, earth, and everything in it in six days. We just talked about that. But John tells us, in his his, uh, John 1 that the Word, Jesus, was with God and was God, that through Him all things were created and nothing was created without Him. So in the act of creation itself, the six-day process that we just talked about, Jesus, the Word, was the one doing the creation. Just think about that. The man that the Pharisees are criticizing is the one who spent the first six days creating and they want to talk to him about the Sabbath. He, so he was the one creating, and then he was the one resting when it was done. So he established the first work week and the first Sabbath. And when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, he doesn't mean he just has a, a slightly better grasp of the doctrine. He means he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the initiator, the creator, the one who established it. He's the ordainer of the Sabbath. So, how are we Gentile Christians supposed to view this? When we, are, we, uh, are we obligated, like the Jews, by, on pain of death to not work on the Sabbath? Well, we are. We are to observe a time of rest. Now, Paul tells us in, in Romans to not worry so much about specific days. Don't let people judge you based on what days you, you observe certain things. So, we have some liberty in Christ that God did not, did not give to Israel. But the principle of work and rest remains. And we need the rest. The rest gives us energy for the work, and the work gives us purpose. So we need the rest. It comes with it. 
And we need that time for quiet meditation, for prayer. Do you spend your rest time with that? Do you set aside time so that you can meditate, so that you can pray, so that you can worship, appreciate what God's given you? Or do you just fill your time with distractions? For us in these days, I'm not telling anybody anything new. That is the temptation. Because distractions are everywhere. They're in your pocket all the time, unless it's in your hand, that phone. At any time, you can be distracted if you want to. You don't need to have quiet time. Well, you do need to have quiet time. But you don't have to because you can get that phone and you can be distracted. You can watch Netflix. You can do any number of things that are, that are of dubious value, but you can spend your time. And distraction is not the same as rest. Do you spend your time? Do you meditate on God? Do you thank Him for His blessings on you? Do you trust that He's going to provide when you take a break? Or do you feel frantic like you can never stop working because you're afraid He, he might stop providing? He won't stop providing. Honor Him by resting and looking to Him. Point three. Our work and our rest finds meaning only in Jesus. So Solomon and Moses both teach us that to work to fulfill our purpose and to rest in the honor of God. Solomon teaches us that work is good and it fulfills our purpose. Moses teaches us that this rest, this Sabbath rest, honors God. So these are good things. But Jesus said that all of Scripture was about Him. So what do we make of this? Well, Paul, Paul told the Philippians that when Jesus came, He took on human form. Philippians 2. I was struck by the lyrics of our songs today. There were quite a few lyrics that really mapped into this, uh, this topic. Um, more than mapped, really, were direct. Um, so what do we... Um, he willingly left the perfection of heaven, Philippians 2, and He, he embraced the fallen, imperfect, and cursed human version of work. He came and lived like us. So the one who invented work and rest, who established the pattern by creating the magnificent universe, he came first as a carpenter. What do carpenters do? They use common tools, and they they take existing materials, and they shape imperfect wood, stone, other materials to make things. What do they make? A first century carpenter might have made furniture, houses, barns, sheds, carts, things that you would expect, normal things. Uh, they're not things that are people are going to write a lot of songs about. They're normal things. And you know what? Jesus did this for probably 20 years. 20 years is a long time. And He did this. So He willingly came and took on the task of being a man and doing regular work of a man. Humble work. It's not glorious. It's good and it's wholesome, but it's not glorious. But while he did it, he honored the law of Israel and he submitted to God the Father. So he worked diligently. We know that he never broke God's law. So he worked diligently when it was time to work. And then he rested on the Sabbath. And we know that he sought the Father in prayer often. He would withdraw to himself so that he could do that. And we know that he engaged with people in the synagogue, even as a young boy. He engaged in the synagogue so that he could talk about the truth of God with other people. But his ultimate work, and we know this, his ultimate work after all of this was to go to the cross. And the cross is the, is the center of all, of all of history and all of work. And in fact, right before the crucifixion in John 17, 4, he said, I've glorified you on the earth. 
by completing the work you gave me to do. He's talking about work. The work was common work. Then the work of gathering his disciples. That was work to go get them. Then to declare the good news that God's kingdom had come. But his last task was to die. That was the one remaining thing to do at this point in John 17. But his death, we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit last week. His death was purposeful. It had meaning. It was work. In a very real way, it was work. It was an assignment for a man. And it had to be done by a man to pay the penalty for men. It was the hardest, most humiliating assignment ever given. It required the, the willing humbling of himself, who was God, before people, before, I mean before, in front of, people who were not only infinitely less good than he was, but infinitely less powerful. So he willingly submitted to people who were both evil and weak when he was good and all-powerful. He willingly did that. And I would say with will and grit, he approached the cross. He looked forward, not back. He endured the insults and did not answer back in kind. He endured the crown of thorns, which was both an insult and a very painful injury. But he kept to the task because he was working. He was doing the task. He was following the assignment. He, kept, he could have rained down fire. He could, have, he could have brought immediate judgment on any of these people as they were tormenting him and insulting him. But he didn't because he was working. He had a job to do. When they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for their forgiveness. That was work. While he hung in suffering, he asked John to care for his mother. Imagine, he's taking care of some details. Important details, but really, he's dying. And he's hanging on the cross. John, this is your mother. He's making sure that his mom's going to be cared for. But here's the tell. His last words when he died. It is finished. It wasn't... Some words of of relief or, oh, the suffering's over. It is finished. I had a job to do. I did the job. That was what he did. It is finished. Scripture tells us that after his dying, he was glorified to sit, not stand, not sit, but to sit at the right hand of God the Father because his work was done. His work was done. And now he can rest in glory. And what was it all for? To redeem us. To take away the curse and restore us to purpose and glory with God. Because of Jesus' work, our work can have meaning. Jesus is the answer to Solomon's question. Because of Jesus, we can enter into true rest in God. Solomon asked, is there any benefit from all this toil? Jesus gives us the answer in Him. There is benefit. And Moses asked, Lord, establish the work of our hands. Because Moses knew we don't have the power. We can work in obedience, in accordance with his will, but he must establish it if it's going to be established. Nothing that we can do is powerful enough. In Jesus, we can have, we can have permanence. So I want to say a few more words in conclusion. I'd invite the musicians to come up and 
and be ready for our time of response. So look, let me ask you to just look. Look at your hands. They are a remarkable invention. If you just look at how they work and move your fingers, God invented that. They they are what makes us able to do all the things we can do. They can be strong. They They can make things. They can break things. They can move things. But they can be so finely skilled. They're capable of building, cleaning, hugging, healing, fighting, loving, playing music. These musicians are going to use their hands with skill. When Jesus came, He took on human hands, just like yours, just like mine. He used them to build things. He used them to mix mud, to dab it on a blind man's eyes and heal. He used His hands to lift up the bread and the fish before He fed the 5,000. He used His hands to embrace His friends. He used them to wash the feet of His disciples. He washed their feet with the same hands. He used His hands to break the bread to show what was about to happen to His body at the Last Supper. In the end, His hands were nailed, useless to a cross. His last work was done by choosing to forgive, by withholding the vengeance that He rightfully could have taken. He didn't use His hands for His very last work. If you don't know Jesus, today's a good day to trust Him. To let Him give your work meaning. To let Him give your life meaning. To let Him give you true rest, true peace. But if you do know Jesus, will you remember that all your work is nothing without Him? But all the work that you do in Him has eternal significance and it brings Him joy. Only in Him can you find the rest that your soul desires.